Our God, through the prophet Hosea, declared, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. God says that he will be the plague of death. And then he came. The Son of God came in the fullness of time to fulfill these words. And because of this, the believer in our Lord Jesus Christ can speak to the grave too and can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. I want to speak to you today about that victory that Christ has won over death for all his people. By his death, we will consider these two verses of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Our focus is on the death of Christ, and that's the focus we should have on this occasion this morning when we have come to gather to remember him in his death. We'll consider this morning the death of the God-man, the death of the victor, and the death of the liberator. In order to understand the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must know at least these things. All of them are revealed to us here in the word. God uses our understandings. He addresses our understandings and enlightens our understandings through his word. If we intend to be worthy communicants, then we need to partake with discernment. Who is it that died? Why did he die? What does his death mean? We need to partake with understanding. And more than that, we need to partake with faith wrought by the Holy Ghost. Aside from even partaking worthily, in order for our souls to be saved, to be delivered from hell. We need to understand the death of Christ. We need to believe upon the one who died. And therefore, I praise the Lord that I have this opportunity today to speak on the most important of subjects that sinners ever hear of, which is the death of Christ. First of all, the death of the God-man. Notice verse 14. Who is it that died? We're told, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. This is telling us that the Son of God took an action. It's telling us that there were those who by nature were partakers of flesh and blood, who are sharers of human nature and all its frailties by nature. But then there is another one who took an action, who took part in this flesh and blood. And it's emphasized who it is that took this action of taking part in flesh and blood. It is said he also himself. It is amazing that this one would take part. It implies that he existed before he ever took part of flesh and blood. This is the son of God that took part of flesh and blood. Who is he? He is eternal, pre-existing his incarnation. He is most perfectly blessed. He is impassable. The son of God in his Godhead is not capable of suffering. That's why he took a human nature. He is unchangeable in his Godhead, but he took a human nature that died and that suffered. He personally took took our nature to himself. Notice how the word of God is very insistent in focusing our attention upon his person. Yes, he suffered in our human nature. However, Who was it that suffered in our nature? It is persons who act, persons who suffer. It is the Son of God that suffered, the Son of God that died. In fact, that's why the death of Jesus Christ 
has ability to save sinners. It's because of who it is that suffered. Chapter 1 tells us this. It tells us in verse 3 in chapter 1 of who the Son is, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Here is set before us a divine person who is distinct from the Father, but who is the mirror of all the Father's perfections, who has all the perfections of Godhead in a distinct person in God. This is the eternal Son. And then we're told that this person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. Sometimes you do something and you use an instrument to carry it out. You use a tool to cut wood or something like that. However, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he purged our sins, did he use an angel? Did he employ something or someone else to get the job done? How was it that he effectually purged our sins? He did it by himself. You see, here's the thing. That he himself took part of flesh and blood in order to suffer and die. In order for your offenses against God to be repaired. There needed to be a person who would suffer who would be God because your offenses have been offenses against no less than God. Why is hell eternal? People ask. What can someone commit as people say, well, a few sins against God in a short lifetime and they're thrown to an eternal hell? It's not a matter of a few sins. But here's the other thing. Every sin is a sin against God, an infinite God. And that's why you and all of us sinners are hell-worthy. And so in order for the dishonor done to God by your sin to be repaired, there needed to be a person who is God, who would come in the flesh and in his sufferings and in his death be himself dishonored and laid low in the dust of death. This is what Christ has done. And what God calls for in his word is that you would believe upon his person. In order to be saved, you are to believe in him and you are to love him for everyone who believes in him will love him, will be attached to his person, his wonderful person. This is the first thing. Who was it that took part of our nature? That was the Son of God. But of what did he partake? That is, flesh and blood. That's a description of human nature. Flesh is sometimes contrasted in the Bible with spirit. Like the horses of Egypt, Isaiah says, they are flesh and not spirit. That is, that they are weak. So flesh, that's weak human nature. And blood, the life is in the blood. So he took to himself a human nature that's weak like yours and a a living human nature with the lifeblood, a lifeblood that was capable of being shed. Job chapter six, Job asked this question, is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh of brass? Answer, no. Job He felt his sufferings. It would have been easy if Job had been a robot or a statue made of brass or stone, but he wasn't. His trials reached the very depths of his soul with painfulness and sorrow. And our Lord Jesus took our nature the way that it is, not sin, but as created by God in its weakness, flesh and blood. Jesus truly felt and bore his sufferings. And in fact, his Godhead sustained him in order to endure more than human nature would ever have been able to endure because mere human nature would have been obliterated by the wrath of God. But here he comes. He is strong and mighty God, yet he comes taking part of flesh and blood, truly suffering. 
This is the Savior who is set before us at the table, isn't it? What two elements do we have? But bread, which is broken. Wine, which has been poured out. Showing us that our Savior in his nature was truly bruised, broken, suffered, and died. And then there are applications of that, aren't there? It tells us that weakness is no hindrance to being near unto Jesus Christ. Because Christ was weak, we're we're prone to let the devil tell us lies. Because you're so weak, you can't possibly be near to Christ. In order to be near to him, you need to be perfectly strong to be able to do a bunch of things. No, but Christ is near to the weak. Now, here's another lie of the devil. He hides from you what sin is. Because sin does create distance from Christ. Look at our text. Does it anywhere say that Christ became sinful? No, perish the thought. He took a weak human nature, but a holy, sinless human nature. Therefore, weakness equals nearness to Christ. Sin creates distance from Christ. Be content then to be in a suffering condition, for Christ was. For whom did he take part of all of this that we've been speaking of. That was for the children. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, and so on. Is this not a sweet word, this word of children? It shows us the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all the relations that a believer has to our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the bridegroom, as we considered last night in the Song of Solomon the husband, the head. Christ is the elder brother, Romans 8. And again, here in Hebrews 2, not ashamed to call us brethren. Not only husband, not only elder brother, but also father, because he has children. Notice that every possible sweet human relation, Christ will stand in that relation to you if you but cleave to him by faith. Children, now this, Look how close he comes to his children. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And here, this word likewise, it's an interesting word. It has to do with being nigh or near. It's used in Philippians 2 to describe Epaphroditus being nigh unto death. Christ comes nigh to his children by his incarnation. He is not the kind of father that stands far off and aloof, but he comes near. We need to know then who are the children of Jesus Christ. You see how vital a question that is. Because Christ did not become incarnate for everyone. He became incarnate because of the children that he came to save. His incarnation was directed towards his children and his death was for his children. The atonement that he made was limited or definite for the children. Therefore, the most important question for any of us is to know whether or not we are the children of Christ. And we can know because the previous verse is a quotation from Isaiah. Verse 13, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. You can look that up in Isaiah 8. But Isaiah is speaking about his disciples. He's speaking about his disciples who received the testimony of the word of God as his children. And that's a a metaphor that makes sense because a father teaches his children. So how can you know whether or not you are one of Christ's children? Well, if you listen to his word, then you are his children. This chapter tells us that right there at the beginning. It tells us actually that there's a danger of not listening. There's a danger of stopping listening to the word of God. Some people through sleepiness don't listen to the word of God. Some people by heaping up many distractions, don't listen to the word of God. Some people 
don't want to hear their sins called out and they don't listen to the word of God. But we need to take care that we do listen to the word of God. And there are children of Christ who listen to his word. Praise be to God. But listening to the word of God never feels like being on cruise control. Listening to the word of God is a matter of giving heed, according to verse 1. Giving earnest heed, having a godly jealousy and fear over our own hearts, which are prone to slip away, to go into deafness towards the word of Christ. Are you Christ's child? You can know that you are if you listen to his word and follow his voice. He took part of flesh and blood for the children. But why did he take part of flesh and blood? That was to die. The immediate purpose of the incarnation was the death of Christ. I've been speaking about the incarnation because that was the means to the end of the death of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a tendency to speak wonderfully and glowingly about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how can anyone do otherwise? What a wonderful and amazing thing that he himself likewise took part of flesh and blood, but he did so in order to die. So there's a danger, and that is when people talk about the incarnation, but then they never speak about the death of Christ. And it reveals a problem. A spiritual problem lies behind that disconnect. Why would people want the incarnation but not the cross? It's because they minimize sin. You see, your sin, our sin, is the great thing that needs to be dealt with. It's not just that we needed one to assume our nature, but we needed him to do that in order to make payment for sin. It's not as if, well, isn't it wonderful that we can all just absorb ourselves in the earthly experience of being human because, after all, the Son of God came down from heaven and he took flesh and blood and he had the experience of being human. Well, yes, he did. Praise the Lord for the condescension in that. But he did so in order to die. Do not allow this doctrine of the incarnation to be abused in your mind towards earthliness, he came down to die. So we see the death of the God-man. Who is it that died? And how did he die? By taking our nature, our weak nature, for the sake of the children, in order to die for them. But not only the death of the God-man, but we need to consider this morning the death of the victor, the death of one who won the victory, the death of one who performed a kingly act in his death. Was Christ's death an act of his priestly office or was it an act of his kingly office? Yes, both an act of his priestly office because he was the priest who offered himself up unto God in his death, but also an act of his kingly office because by dying, he destroyed someone. He destroyed the chief enemy. Second part of verse 14, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. By his death, he vanquished an enemy. Here was a great battle. Boys, do you enjoy reading about battles and victories and defeats and enemies so completely defeated that they leave the field and they're slaughtered and destroyed? Well, here is the greatest story of a defeat, the greatest story of a battle that has ever been. And it is a true story, but it came about through the seed of the woman his heel being bruised as he bruised the head of the serpent. Think of the glory of Jesus Christ in this kingly act that he carried out in his death. Think about the powerful enemy that our Lord Jesus Christ destroyed. First of all, we're told about the power of this enemy, and then we're told his name. 
We're told that this enemy, that he had the power of death. And then, just so we're not mistaken, we're told exactly who that is. The devil. The power of death. Could there be any power that would be more rightly feared by mortals like you and me than the power of death? Death. That means physical death. But why is there physical death? Physical death is only part of the penalty for our sin. There's spiritual death and there's eternal death in hell. And that power of death in all its fullness is the power that is wielded by the devil. Now, in what way does the devil wield this power of death? Well, God, not in the same way that God does, because, yes, God and he alone is the one who kills and the one who makes alive. God is the sovereign king and disposer of all things. He decides how long or how short your life is. He brings life and he brings it to an end according to his sovereign good purpose. And God is the judge who has visited death upon our race as a penalty for our sins. Now, the devil is not God. The devil is not the absolute sovereign. The devil is not the judge whose justice brings forth this penalty of death. So in what way does the devil have the power of death? Very important to understand. The devil has the power of death on the one hand as a hunter. The devil is constantly busy. Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning. The number one intention of the devil towards you personally today, as you hear the word of God, is to kill you and to destroy you. Of all things that people hunt for, this evil spirit that we call the devil hunts for precious souls. The devil, as the hunter, was there in Eden when our first parents were there. He pounced upon his prey and he brought them to death. That was a successful day of hunting for the devil. He worked by temptation. He, of course, could do nothing unless man would sin. But man sinned and brought himself into a state of death. The devil set the trap and the devil is setting traps for you. Do you understand this? That there is an active, unseen enemy of your soul who wants you dead. He uses means. He's a hunter and he uses means. He uses snares. The word of God tells us about some of those snares. For instance, in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7, it tells us about the strange woman and how she ensnares, and she has honey in her mouth, but in the end she is as bitter as gall. The devil uses her, and he hates you. He wants you dead. The devil wields the power of death as an accuser. He, He works worldly sorrow that leads unto death. Notice, actually, that in the Bible it speaks about excommunication as a handing over unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what exactly how does Satan destroy people? They've sinned, they've remained stubborn in their sin, in their scandalous sin, and they're cast off. They're cast out of the church. They are cut off from the promises of the gospel and the devil feasts upon their soul. And he says, there's no hope for you. You're mine. You have sinned. There is no mercy. You are on the borders of hell. Give your thoughts to darkness. Give your thoughts to despair. And he wastes and drinks up the spirit as an accuser. And a lot of the things that he says are true. Have you ever known anything like this? Apart from that special case of being handed over to Satan, 
Maybe you've known something of these type of accusations. He says, you've sinned so badly that God will never see your face. Don't bother coming to the throne of grace. No hope for you. Just harden yourself more in iniquity. Cast off the fear of God and run into atheism, to despair and to the indulgence of the flesh. He wields the power of death in this way. Also, the devil wields the power of death as an executioner. At times, he is the instrument by which actual physical death can come about. Our Lord Jesus in the garden, they came to arrest him and he said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. We know that Satan had entered into Judas in order that Judas would betray Christ, that Satan was behind the stirring up of the crowds and the the high priests and the cry, crucify him, crucify him. You see, Satan was acting in a way like a hangman. And so he, however, was outwitted because he saw the weakness of Jesus Christ, saw the weakness of his flesh and blood. He pounced upon him. Let me kill him, he thought, and then I will have the victory. But he encountered the mighty power of Christ's Godhead, and he received the surprise of his life. He was beaten back. Oh, but what a powerful enemy. This is the enemy that Christ defeated. So here's the first thing about this death of the victor. Do you realize what a powerful enemy Christ defeated by his death? That is the one that had the power of death. If we were just to look this afternoon out at the graveyard and we could see the headstone stretching from left to right, we would be reminded that the devil has the power of death and he yields it very successfully. He has brought death upon our entire race. The question is not whether or not you need to face this enemy. The question is whether or not you will face him alone or whether you will face him with Christ. Here's the powerful enemy that our Lord Jesus defeated. But then the surprising means by which our Lord Jesus defeated him, and that is through death. The one that had the power of death, our Lord Jesus destroyed by death. Our Lord Jesus took Satan's own weapon and slew him with his own weapon. You know how... Elsewhere, the apostle says that our Lord Jesus has spoiled principalities and powers. So that means he's taken away the captives of the the powers of darkness. But also he says that he made an open show of them, triumphing over them by his cross. Which is that he not only won the victory, but he actually put Satan and all his minions to shame. Not only defeat, but laughter and derision goes against that fool, Satan. The crafty one has been outwitted. He got the surprise of his life the day he stirred them up to crucify our Lord. It was by death that Jesus destroyed the power of the devil. But how does Christ's death defeat the power of Satan, that is by dealing with sin. You see, the foundation of the devil's whole kingdom is sin and the penalty of sin. Death is the penalty of sin. Satan doesn't have any proper right. He's not the judge. He can only plead, and he's very clever. This is the thing that the devil does right. He pleads the demands of the law of God. It's true that you've broken the law of God. And it's true that the law of God threatens death against you. It's true that there's no mercy in the law for sinners. And so the devil pleads that. The sinner deserves to die. And you do deserve to die. But you see, once Christ has dealt with sin by his death, then the devil has nothing more to say. That our Lord Jesus died a God-accursed death upon the cross of Calvary. He satisfied the claims of God's justice against his children. And therefore, the devil has nothing to plead before the throne of God. In all your combat, then, with the devil, the key thing is for you 
to keep your eye upon the death of Jesus Christ. And there is a a combat that remains with the devil. And you cannot fight this battle against him in any other way than by the death of Christ. It's all well and good to remember the, well, God's works in nature. And what, well, he's a powerful God and he's a wise God. And indeed he is. However, in, if we look high and low through heaven and earth and we see all of God's works in nature, we will not hear any hint of the death of Jesus Christ. But that's the one thing that you need in order to defeat the devil. You can't defeat him by your own cleverness, but by the death of Christ. So he comes to you, perhaps, and he makes a suggestion. How can you really be sure that, that, that God exists? Or how can you really be sure that the Bible is reliable and that it's the word of God. You need to meet him with the one thing that he can't withstand. So you need to say to to him, in effect, well, it's true that this mind of mine is subject to great amounts of darkness so that I'm capable even of doubting the existence of God or the truthfulness of the scriptures. And it's true that you've got fiery darts that you can lob against me. But I know that I am no more pinned down under the wrath and curse of God because of the death of Jesus, the Son of God, who took flesh and blood so that sinners with poor, dark, and blinded minds like mine might have the light of truth dawn upon them. I know that I don't deserve to know a lick of truth. I, I don't deserve to have confirmed to my heart the existence of God or the truthfulness of the Scripture, but I know that Jesus died for the children. And therefore, get thee behind me, Satan. Or he comes to you and he says, you're unworthy to pray. Or you're unworthy to preach a sermon. Then you need to say, answer him by the death of Christ. I know that Christ has died. And I know that you would want to work death in me. Oh, devil, you would want to work spiritual death in me. You would want to tell me that I'm cut off from the life-giving presence of God. But I know that the Son of God took flesh and blood and died. So get behind me, Satan. He comes to you and he says, God is out to destroy you. His hand of providence is against you. God delights to bring afflictions upon you and he'll never smile upon you again. You need to answer him by saying, the Son of God took flesh and blood and died. And in that There is demonstrated the love of God to sinners through death, through Christ's own death, is the destruction of him that had the power of death. Look to the death of Christ in your battle with the devil. This victory of Christ over the devil by his death is a complete victory. It says that through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. Now, if you were reading this for the first time and you didn't, and you'd never read any other part of the Bible, then I might excuse you for thinking, well, this means that there's no more devil because the devil is destroyed by the death of Christ. Uh, well, no, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that the devil is now non-existent, but it does mean that it's just as good as that. If we had faith constant enough to look to the death of Christ it would be for us as if there were more, no more devil and nothing more of his power. He is a powerless enemy. Because sin is dealt with, his power is gone. Therefore, Christian, when you give way to the least hearkening unto what he says, then you are living below your privileges. The Christian has zero obligation to listen to anything that the, that the devil says. You need to resist him in faith. And the thing is that he sees that your flesh and blood is weak. And therefore, he thinks, I'll get an advantage because these children are still in their weakness. I'll attack them, harass them, and sow doubts in their minds. I'll lodge against them the flaming, my flaming darts. But you need to remember, every assault that the devil makes, he is overreaching himself. What would you think? If there was warfare, and if one of the parties in the warfare was utterly vanquished, 
and was cast into the lowest dungeon and had, you know, the defeated king had shackles on his hands and shackles on his feet. And he's there behind two layers of bars and he begins to thump upon his chest and he says, you know, this land is mine. Well, we would just laugh at him. Well, everything I've just said applies to the devil. He has been destroyed as far as the children of Christ go. All of his assaults on the children will backfire and will only be used by God to drive these children of Christ closer to Christ. The death of the victor then. But thirdly, this morning, the death of the liberator. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ is the death of the liberator. So notice there in verse 15. The Christ through death destroyed the devil. And then the second purpose of his death parallel to this was to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now that tells us that there is something that is natural to man, which is the fear of death. Fear is an inward pain and disquietment. To be afraid is to be inwardly stirred and agitated and to make attempts to avoid an evil that is expected. And so there is a natural fear of death. How, in fact, could our attitude towards death be anything other than fear? Because death is a penalty for sin and it's unnatural. Now, that natural fear of death, it can vary in its degree. So some people have a strong constitution and they're kind of unflappable. And so they might even openly say how they're not afraid of dying. And there are differences in how active people's consciences are. So some people have a seared conscience and they're asleep as far as not understanding the the reason behind death, which is the wrath of God for man's sin. They don't perceive the anger of God that lies behind death. Other people, their conscience is more alive, and they understand that death speaks of an angry God. And so there are varieties to the natural fear of death, but it's present in everyone. And that fear, it creates a bondage. This is how... Slave masters keep their slaves subject to themselves, not by the cords of love, but by the cords of fear. And in fact, this lifetime subject to bondage is literally a lifetime subject to slavery. What's it like to be in bondage to the fear of death? Just imagine that you were suddenly dropped down in a place where there was a thicket of thorns. And you can't move because you're surrounded on, by thorns on every side. And if you, if you move, you'll be pricked and your flesh will be torn. You can't extricate yourself. You're all hemmed in. You can't move. This is what bondage, because of the fear of death, is like. All pleasures have a shadow of death over them. There can be, of course, some gratification Uh, to indulging different pleasures, but to the one who's under the bondage of fear, he knows deep inside that he will have to give up these pleasures and he will have to die. The bondage due to the fear of death makes the thought of God himself uncomfortable because God is terrible. God is the judge. Death brings the sinner into the presence of God. Man attempts to free himself from this bondage. Some people attempt to free themselves by saying, I'll cast off the cords and I'll run into the indulgence of sinful lusts and I'll harden myself against the awareness that God is my judge. I will wish that there were no God, Psalm 14. And so they run into hedonism and into atheism. Other people try to escape in another way. And they say, well, yes, death is the penalty for sin. God is angry. Therefore, 
I shall be a moral person. I shall observe religion. I will gain for myself the best reputation that can be had for keeping all the rules and doing all the things that religious people do. But neither of these ways can bring a man to escape from the chain of God that is found in this bondage due to the fear of death. Now, notice that this bondage due to the fear of death, that God is never saying to us, he's not putting at this point in his word, he is not saying, he's not giving us a commandment. He is not saying, thou shalt be in bondage to the fear of death. He is not saying, choose this or embrace this because it is a penalty upon man for his sin. It is, by its very definition, something that is involuntary, not chosen or willed by man, and something that man cannot escape from. And so I do not say that this is your duty to be in bondage to the fear of death. However, I do say to you that if this is your condition, then you need to realize that that's what your condition is. The most foolish thing for you would be to laugh your way past the graveyard. The most foolish thing for you would be to say, I know that there's a disturbance somewhere deep within, and sometimes when I'm lying on my bed in the silence, I can't escape from the knowledge that I will die, and I will meet God. And that thought, it puts fear in me. Instead of suppressing that thought, instead of drowning it in pleasures, instead of distracting yourself, instead of sleeping away under the word, you need to acknowledge, I'm under the chain of God in this bondage of fear under death. And then you need to cry to deliverance. Cry to the Lord Jesus Christ who can deliver you. And let's speak now about that deliverance that he gives because that's what verse 15 is telling us. It tells us that Christ has freed the children, the children from this fear and bondage. Let me tell you about this liberator who by his death wrought this deliverance. Christ's deliverance from this fear and bondage is a timely deliverance because it speaks about his delivering those who were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It shows us the general pattern in which our Lord Jesus Christ works in saving souls, that generally he brings liberation after there has been bondage. Now, once again, I'm never, by the grace of God, will stand in this pulpit to tell you that it's your duty to be in bondage to fear. I don't say that that's a duty, but I am telling you that this is usually the way the Lord saves, is by allowing someone to feel the consequences of their sin, namely bringing them under a bondage of fear because they know they'll die and they'll meet the living God. God usually allows people first to feel, feel that bondage and fear all their lifetimes. They have, as it were, a lifetime of bondage, and then they experience the liberator. God can do otherwise. He can save a child in the womb who never consciously has this experience of being in bondage to fear. But you see, when he does it according to his usual pattern, notice what happens then. That makes the liberation that much sweeter. Then, in, in the understanding of the one whom Christ has liberated, then he says, I know what it was like to be incapable of freeing myself from bondage, that all my, all my years were swallowed up by fear, but then the blessed liberator came by his Holy Spirit and he knocked off my chains. He brings a timely deliverance. You should be praising today, communicants at our Lord's Supper, praising for a timely deliverance that came after your bondage unto fear. And then this is a liberating deliverance. If, if that's not a redundancy, I'll say it. A liberating deliverance. Let me emphasize just how free Christ makes his children 
through his death. The word that's used here for delivering is a word that means literally something like change away from and to change them away from that bondage under the fear of death. Death, that's the king of terrors. Death bears the marks of the wrath of an angry God. To be delivered from that fear is to be delivered from all fears. What then should we be afraid of? If death is no longer the messenger of an angry God, but if death is the love letter of Jesus Christ, telling his fair one and his dove to arise and to come away and to come with him to the Father's mansions, to Christ's children. Death is a door of entrance into his Father's house. To Christ's children, death is a door of exiting this world which is vain and full of trouble. Therefore, all the children of Christ should be marked by joy and thankfulness. Because when you're afraid and your spirit is all bound up in the grips of fear, one thing you can't do is rejoice. But you can rejoice today, O children of Christ. You can sing praise unto the Lord who has loosed your bands and who has bound you unto himself. This liberator, he prepares his children for suffering and martyrdom by delivering them. Now think about the context of this epistle to the Hebrews, because the main message here to the Hebrews is don't go back. Yes, you were taught the shadows and you're taught the ceremonies of the Old Testament, but now Christ has come. Christ is better than the angels. He's better than Moses, better than the priesthood. And don't go back to the shadows and be willing to be persecuted for not going back to the shadows. He calls to their remembrance, and he says, you accepted joyfully the plundering of your properties. You associated yourselves with those that were afflicted in this way. And he tells them, keep on going. Don't be afraid of martyrdom, he's telling them. You haven't yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. Be ready to die for your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Moses, who feared him that was invisible and didn't fear the wrath of the king, who considered the reproach of Christ greater treasures than all the wealth of Egypt. Be ready to give up your life. And you have no reason to be afraid of doing so. As surely as Christ has died, as surely as we have the tokens of his death set before us today, as surely as sin is dealt with, as surely as the devil who had the power of death has been vanquished and destroyed, then, oh, children of Christ, you have no reason to be afraid of dying. And that would be your privilege to be made conformable unto Christ in his death, to let go of this world and let go of your own life in order to follow him. And then that frees you up for daily self-denial. So once we set our sights on the fact that we don't need to be afraid to die, if it be a martyr's death, then everything else too, that becomes by proportion that much easier. We don't need to be afraid of dying. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid of speaking. What if I speak up in a conversation to direct the attention of the conversation towards things heavenly and spiritual. And what if I seem strange? Well, I don't need to be afraid of that because I'm not afraid of dying. My tongue is loosed from its bondage. Or what about our pocketbooks? Are they loosed from bondage? When we know that we have to die and leave this world, does it not loosen our grips? to open our hands with generosity, our time. Can we afford to give our time to someone who's needy? Maybe even someone who doesn't have the capacity to appreciate what we might be doing for them. We don't need to be afraid of losing out. In fact, once we're not afraid of death, we don't need to be afraid of anything. 
What a liberating deliverance that Christ has bought, brought by his death. But also this deliverance is all too often a forgotten deliverance. Because strictly speaking, notice how verse 15 says that Christ delivered persons. He delivered them. And then it tells us the condition that these persons were in. He delivered the persons, the children, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the persons of the children of Christ are definitively and irreversibly delivered and changed away and not under the power of death. But something can happen to them in their minds, even while their persons are gloriously freed from the power of death, the old fear can creep back in over their minds. And therefore, it's possible for the children of Christ to forget their deliverance. And that's why we have it here in the word. It's telling us, children of Christ, hear what Christ has done for you. This is why we have the Lord's Supper, in order to seal to us afresh that deliverance. Well, the apostle says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We need the spirit of the Lord in order to persuade us and enable us to see what it is that we have by the death of Christ. This is not, a, a thi- this is not something that is automatic or autopilot or coasting along. This is, oh Lord, help me to remember. Indeed, in our remembering of him, In remembering of him and his death, we should be seeking that, that the Lord would apply to us afresh the sense of liberty that we have from the fear of death. And I know nothing greater to quicken us in our living wholeheartedly for Christ than a fresh sense of our deliverance. Well, may the Lord bless that word to us. And would you stand with me as we pray? O Lord, our God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the blessed Lord Jesus and for his death for us. The death of the God-man, the death of the victor, the death of the liberator. All glory and praise to thee, O God, for the gift of thy Son and for the wonderful accomplishment of his death. Bless us, we pray, to abide in him, to know, to realize, to bring forth all the fruits of that which he alone, unaided by us, has accomplished. And we pray then, bless thy word, bless prayer and praise and the sacrament as we continue praying in Jesus' name. Amen.